Good morning, Journey Church. Does anybody relate to that? Hate snakes? If you've seen the series, uh, Indiana Jones keeps running into snakes throughout all four movies. And he hates them, but he can't get away from them. And he keeps bumping into them. So uh, this morning, uh, you know, I was thinking about it, and I really struggled to find any situation where snakes are portrayed in a good light. Right? They're always associated with evil. And Early on in the Bible, we get introduced to a serpent called Satan, right? And he is our enemy. And so this morning, we are going to talk about snakes. And we're going to talk about Satan and sin. Aren't you guys glad you came to church today? No, we're also going to talk about salvation, right? That's the most important part. So those are the things we're going to talk about. And uh, I was going to make a joke. Uh, I, I ran it past my wife. She didn't think it was real funny, but I was going to say that, you know, all these points that I have with serpents and snakes and sin, all these S's. Yeah, she didn't think it was funny either. Okay. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get started. Let's pray. Well, Father God, as we open up your word today, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, convict us. Um, just draw us closer to you. I pray that uh, the things that you want to say, Lord, our, our hearts would be open to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if we're going to learn how to do this Christian walk, we need to know that we have an enemy. We have a real enemy who wants to take us out in Satan. Um, sometimes we can be real tentative about even bringing him up in conversation, right? Like, don't say the word Satan, dude. He's going to pop up. And, you know, it's kind of like if you've seen the Harry Potter movies, the bad guy. Uh, he is called the one who shall not be named. They don't even want to say his name. It's so freaked out. And um, there was, does anybody remember the singer uh, in the 70s, Keith Green? Keith Green? He has an awesome song, and it's written from the viewpoint of Satan. And it's called, Nobody Believes in Me Anymore. And he's ecstatic about it. He's happy. How could a loving God send people to hell, right? So people just kind of poop with the whole idea uh, that there can't be a Satan, and he could just run amok and do whatever he wants, and he's happy about it. So um, he is working 24-7. We do have a real enemy. And... It goes all the way back to the garden, right, in the beginning of the Bible. And so to kind of set the stage, you have Satan who has tried to overthrow God, and he's taken a third of the angels with him, and he loses. Uh, there's actually a picture, and I don't have it, but there's a picture of Jesus and Satan, and they're on this table like arm wrestling, right, like they're, like they're you know, peers, and that could not be further from the truth. Jesus is the creator, and Satan is created, so he is defeated, he's thrown down to earth, and he decides, okay, if I can't overthrow God, then I'm gonna try to overthrow his creation. I'm gonna try to destroy this pinnacle of what he's created in you and me. So in Genesis chapter three, we see uh, this open up with the fall of man. And it says that, this, that Satan, the serpent, was more crafty than any other animal in the garden. He was more crafty, and he wasn't making wreaths. Right? Another, another translation says that he was the most subtle of all the creatures. And that, that seems more accurate to me because when Satan comes to us, right, he doesn't just say poof and like appear to us and say, I think you should go over there and start gossiping. Right? He's very subtle about it. And so he, that's, how he, uh, that's how he gets in front of us, very subtly. And so he approaches Eve in the garden. He comes up to her. And the first thing that we have that's recorded, he starts talking to her and he says, 
did God really say that you weren't supposed to eat of the trees of the garden? See, intentionally misleading, trying to put doubt inside of her mind. Did God really say? And Eve clarifies. She says, no, 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 no. We can eat of the trees of the garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one that I happen to be standing to, next to right now, right? If Satan had appeared to her another point in the garden, that wouldn't have been a temptation. But he comes at an opportune moment right when she's standing there, okay? And so he intentionally starts to put doubt in her mind. And he says, you're not gonna die. God just told you that because he knows that when you eat, that you're gonna be just like him. You're gonna know everything from good to evil. You're not gonna die. Now, half truths, right? She is gonna know the difference between good and evil, but she ain't gonna be like God. And she is gonna die, but not right away, right? Not right away, but there is death coming when she chooses to disobey. And so sin enters the world through their disobedience. So you've got, you know, snake bite. They've been snake bit by sin. And when this happens, after this first encounter and God realizes it and they get pushed out of the garden, we have here in Genesis says, God told the serpent, he said, because you've done this, cursed are you beyond all livestock and cattle, beyond all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I am declaring war between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He shall bruise your head and, he, and you shall bruise his heel. So God curses the snake and he gives a little foreshadowing, a little picture of what's going to happen. Because although Satan's going to wound his heel, right? A heel is, is not a fatal wound, but a wound to the head, right? That can be, that can be fatal. And so he's, he's talking about what's going to happen. So evidently at one point, um, the serpent had legs. He had feet, whatever he had. But he says, now you're going to slink around on your belly. And he's also talking. This doesn't seem to be a big problem. I don't know if it was like Narnia where uh, they could speak with the animals, but it doesn't seem to be a big issue. And so while there are lots of different types of snakes, what I looked up was the venom and how it affects our bodies. And I found three specifically, and it's kind of interesting, uh, the correlation. So the first one is a neurotoxin. And this neurotoxin, when you get bit by it, it starts to affect your brain. And it starts to affect your nervous system and all of the things that we use to you know, encounter our world. And so Satan loves to attack our mind. That is one of the first places he goes. My wife has a book called Battlefield of the Mind because he starts placing these seeds of doubt, right? Seeds of worry. We become unsure of those things that we believe. And he can really get in there and wreak havoc if we choose to listen to it. Um, worry and fear, all these things lead to anxiety, right? Anxiety, we become anxious and we're anxious society uh, here in our country. But has anybody ever gone to Dr. Google when you, when you don't feel good? Huge mistake, right? Don't go to Dr. Google. You have like this pain in your side and so you, go, you look it up, like what is that lower left? And you could have indigestion or you could be dying right? Totally creates more anxiety. But anxiety and worry, you know what those are? They're sin. Worry is a sin. It's a lack of faith in God and what he can do. It's like saying, God, I know you're God. I know you can do lots of things, but this problem is really big. It's big. I don't know if you can handle it, God, but he can. And so it's a sin. In 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy one, six through eight. It says, for this reason, this is Paul writing to Timothy, his protege. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which has been given to you when I laid my hands on you. For God gave us a spirit. He did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love, self-control, self-discipline, sound mind. And he says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to live this holy life. So Paul is telling Timothy, he's like, look, this, this flame that was put inside of you when I laid my hands on you, you need to fan that thing into a fire. You need to be proactive. You can't be passive about this thing. And, you know, 
imagine yourself, you're in a locomotive and you're going down and you're chucking coal into this train and you're trucking along pretty good and soon the, the engine's red hot and you kind of step back as you're racing down the track and you're like, man, we're moving at a pretty good clip here. I think I'll just take a break. And 30 minutes goes by, an hour goes by, still moving, but you're taking a break and all of a sudden the fire starts to die down and you start to slow down. Um, we become, what do we say? We become paralyzed by fear. And he's saying, look, God did not give us the spirit of fear. A couple weeks ago, we, um, we talked in here and it was shared that every thought that pops into your head is not yours. It's not yours. Have you ever been sitting there and you're doing something and you get this thought inside your head and you're like, where in the world did that come from? Right? It's not from God. Every thought that does not bring life or build you up came from Satan. Now, the last part says that God saved and called us. Not that he is going to save us, not that he is going to call us, he's already done it. He's already done the work. There really, there really should be no such thing as an anxious Christian, guys. There really shouldn't. Um, it goes totally against the grain of faith. Just like there shouldn't be any grumpy Christians. There shouldn't, there shouldn't be any grumpy Christians, guys. We are going to heaven, and God's got it all under control. So there really should be no, no grumpy Christian. You know, the, people will say from time to time, you know, the devil's in the details. Totally false. God is in the details, not the devil. Okay, but if we choose to listen to these lies, it can infect our whole attitude, our whole way of thinking when we get infected by this fear and worry. You know how to get over fear and worry? You want to know how to do it? You have to fan into flames that gift that has been put inside of you the Holy Spirit. You need, to, you need to be proactive about it. You need to listen to messages, right? You need to worship. We need to turn off Netflix and start turning on Caleb or whatever it is, digging into what God is doing in our life. So Timothy's ministry was outward focused, right? He was a pastor. He was a teacher. He was an overseer. So his ministry was outward, not inward, okay? Not very many ministries that are focused inward, right? They say a man who is wrapped up in himself makes a pretty small package. And that's true. When we're wrapped up in ourselves, we're a pretty small package. The second is called a cytotoxic venom. And what this one does is when you get bit, it affects the immediate area and it attacks the skin and it attacks the muscle groups that it got, that it got to. And we are called corporately the body of Christ, right? We are the body of Christ. We're attached to the head, which is Jesus, but we are the body. And because Satan hates you and me, and he wants to destroy his creation, he also hates the church. He hates it. He wants to tear it apart. He would love to do that. And so sin enters into a church. Somebody sins, a pastor sins, and a church gets destroyed, and people are sent reeling, and He's ecstatic about that because he's trying to tear apart this thing that God has put together. You know, the world is watching. The world's watching the whole time. And they see things like this and they're like, aha, see, they're no different than we are. Well, the church is full of hypocrites, right? Well, <laughs> join the club. You're in good company, right? But here's the thing. We have a high standard. Our standard is Jesus. And sometimes we mess up right? But we have a high standard. It's easy to, be, to not be a hypocrite when you don't have standards, right? So uh, my mother used to tell me all the time, and now I get to tell my kids, that you can choose your actions, but you can't choose what? Consequences. You can't choose your consequences. So your sin affects more people than just you. It affects a lot of different people, but we can't control that. Billy Graham went to heaven this year, right? Um, amazing man of God. And not many, unfortunately, like him come, come across uh, in a generation. But uh, when I was watching this reaction uh, at his funeral and at his passing, I'm watching the secular media and how they're approaching this, how they're reporting on this. And even the secular media had to say this was an incredible man. He was sold out to his God. He was above reproach in everything that he did. And they took notice. The world is watching. They want to see if we're going to 
live out this thing that we say we believe. See, this poison kills the tissue, and if it goes on long enough, it's going to have to be amputated. It's going to have to be cut off. And Jesus says in John 15:2, he says that I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, I have read this a lot of times. And I, honestly, when I read this, I think about the pruning part. Like, ah, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to do the right things. And he's pruning and it hurts. Ah, Why is he doing this? So I can bear more fruit. But if you look at it closely, every branch in me, in Jesus, he's saying that you all are the branches. There are branches in the church that aren't bearing fruit. And God comes through and he amputates them. He cuts them off. We need, to, we need to be fruits. We need to be fruity, right, to the world. When they see us, we need to be a little bit fruity. Um, it's okay to be fruity. <laughs> uh, when, when we bear fruit, the world is watching, and they see that. Now, you've heard the, the phrase, charity starts at home. I'll, I'll go farther than that and say that church starts at home. Your home, your household is the church in miniature. It's a mini church. And men, you're the priest of that church. You are. That's your mantle. Single moms, you have to pick up that mantle. And you are the priest of that church, if that is the case. Satan hates the family, right? Hates you and me, hates the church, hates family. Because it's God's, God's idea. God came up with the idea of family, and he hates it. And our families, as you know, are under attack like never before. Never before in our history. Uh, with trying to redefine what a family looks like. And it's, it's getting worse and worse every day. We can see it happening. So when we stop pointing our families towards Jesus, right, that is our jobs as Christians. First and foremost, raise your kids, your family, pointed towards Jesus. And when we stop doing that, the snake bites start coming. And it may not be something overt that you're doing. It may not be an outward type of sin. It might be simply neglect. It might be apathy, right? There is a line in a song that I really like, and it's by a group called Mumford and & Sons. And every time I hear this, it smacks me right between the eyes. And the line goes, if I had had an enemy bigger than my apathy, I would have won. If I had had something in front of me to fight, I would have won. But because I couldn't see something that was right in front of me, I just became apathetic and I fell apart. I got defeated. But we're not perfect, right? Not, no perfect pastors, no perfect parents, no perfect kids. But we can create an environment where our family is always bumping into God, right? Things go wrong. But are your kids, is your wife, husband, bumping into God wherever they go? pointed towards Jesus. If we can do those things, they're going to get it. They're going to get it. The Bible says that God's word does not return void. It doesn't return void. Last thing on this, and this is the most important, is forgiveness and restoration, right? We get bit. Our families go off track. But what does a doctor do? He heals, and then he restores to health. That is the job. What is our job as Christians when people in our family, people in our workplace, in the church, stray off the path? It is our jobs to forgive them and to help restore them. That is what we're supposed to do. And in James 5, 19 and 20, he says this. He's talking to the church. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and somebody brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That is what we're supposed to do as Christians to overcome you know, these, these bites that attack the body. Okay, the third, the third is a hemotoxic venom. And this is one that affects the blood. Um, and what it does is it, it causes decreased uh, blood pressure and uh, starts clotting, your blood starts clotting. When your blood starts clotting when it's not supposed to, uh, obviously that's very dangerous, and it leads to heart attacks and to strokes and all kinds of things. Um, So life 
is in the blood. We know this. Sometimes we think about blood and we're like, ah, you know, associate it with death or something like that. But the, the truth is, is that life is in the blood. And there is this verse in Leviticus. You guys probably all read Leviticus this morning before you came here. Um, but Leviticus 17, uh, verse 11, it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. So Jesus's blood made atonement for us, and now we have life. And so just like, just like we talked about with the apathy, Satan is okay with making you ineffective, right? He's okay with making you um, a little bit lifeless. And maybe, maybe that's where some are, where they're just kind of floating through life and their spiritual heart is barely beating. You know, faith turns into religion, right? The Bible, reading the Bible becomes a bore. You know, you come to church, you kind of go through the motions, you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I sang that song, I heard it on the radio, I'm not impressed, you know, whatever. I want to be entertained. And we may say things like, you know, man, it's, it's just hard being a Christian. It's hard. That's baloney. That's O-S-C-A-R for those of you who get that. It's baloney. It is not hard being a Christian because being a Christian is not about following rules. It is hard not being a Christian, not having the Holy Spirit blow through your life, right? Point you in the right direction, keeping you on track, keeping your spiritual heart pumping, feeding your inner man. It's hard not being a Christian, folks, not having that hope. Okay. There's a famous verse in the Bible. We all know it. You've probably seen it at football games. And it's John 3.16. Okay? I found an awesome picture of this, of John 3.16. This is probably not the way to do it. This guy's got a sign. He's being, you can't see the whole thing, but he's being chased by security and about to be tased, it looks like. Um, so that's a rough way to talk about how God loves the world. But we can probably all quote it. So <laughs> let's, let's say it. Okay, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, do you guys, does anybody know, we know that verse, but maybe not the first 15 verses that come before it. Does anybody know who Jesus, this is Jesus talking, does anybody know who Jesus was talking to when he said this? Nicodemus right? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is one of the leading teachers, one of the leading ruling parties of Israel. And, you know, unlike a lot of his counterparts, Nicodemus has his eyes open. Everything in the Old Testament, which he is an expert in, is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And he is looking for this Messiah. And so he knows that God is with Jesus. And so he wants to go talk with him. And he meets him in the middle of the night. He doesn't want to be seen by everybody else. So he goes in the middle of the night and he starts talking with Jesus. And so he's asking him, he says, listen, teacher, I know that God is with you because you couldn't do these things unless God was with you. And Jesus starts talking with him about this process of salvation, being spiritually born again. That's where we get that phrase born again when Jesus is talking with him right here. And Nicodemus is having a really hard time grasping this. Uh, he's really not getting it. He's talking about, can a man enter his mom's womb again and be born again? And I, I have to kind of like picture like Jesus just shaking his head. He's like, all right, okay, forget the process. Let's talk about the basis for salvation. The basis is me. And he says in verse 14, he says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What in the world is he talking about? He's going to be like a snake. I thought we were just talking about snakes being evil. How is Jesus going to be compared to a snake? But this is what he says. Now, I mentioned Nicodemus was an expert in the Old Testament. He knows everything frontwards. He knows the story that we're going to talk about in Numbers 21. And so Jesus is telling him, look, here's the story. You know the story. I'm going to be like the snake lifted up in the wilderness. So in Numbers 21, verse 4, it goes like this. Here's the story. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people, so the people of Israel, after they came out of Egypt, became impatient on the way, as they had a tendency to do. 
And the people spoke against God and they spoke against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I thought they said there was just no food, but okay. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So the people are complaining. They're grumbling right? As they were prone to do. There's no water. There's no decent food. I'm sick of picking up this stuff that falls from heaven every single day to make bread with. I've got quail coming out my ears. I would, I would be more, I would be better off if I was a slave in Egypt than to be here. Wait a minute. Egypt in the old Testament is always a symbol of the world. It's hard being a Christian. I'd rather not be a Christian and not have to deal with all of this stuff. That's what they're saying. Now, the people of Israel out in the desert, it's estimated between two to three million people. Two to three million. In Kansas City, in the greater Kansas City area, Smithville all the way out to Olathe, this whole area is estimated between about two million people. So take all of us, put us in the desert, and we're all looking at one man, Moses. So we're all looking to him. You know, I tell my kids from time to time, because um, I do it all the time, but I tell you from time to time, uh, one of my favorite phrases, that complaining is like a rocking chair, right? It gives you something to do, but you never get anywhere. And so the people are having these seeds of, you know, discontent and selfishness and complaining just sown into them, and it acts like a poison in your mind. Now, the bad thing, the worst thing about complaining is that it spreads, right? It jumps from one person to another. And once it starts spreading, things fall apart pretty quickly. So they start grumbling against Moses. If all of you stood up and started shouting me down, I'd get a little stressed. He's got 2 million people that are grumbling. So remember that, that neurotoxin, that's what it does. It starts to affect your nervous system, sending out signals, how you see life, and it starts to get a little bit twisted. So God sends snakes into the camp, starts biting people, and then all of a sudden their complaining turns to confession. Help us. We're sorry now. We're sorry. We spoke against you. Please pray that God will take these away from us. But you know what? He doesn't. Because you can choose your actions, but you can't choose your consequences. So the snakes are still there, but he tells them to fashion this pole out of bronze and to put a snake on it. That's weird. The thing that's biting them, you want to put that up on a pole and have everybody just look at it? With two million people, I would have been making my way as close to that pole as possible. Two million people, that thing's a long way off. And all they had to do was look at it. Now, this is really cool, and it's a little bit teachy, but follow me. When God was giving Moses instructions on the tabernacle, and he was telling him to build it, he said, I want you to make the altar out front make it out of bronze, right? This is where judgment happens. This is where the sacrifices were made. So I want you to make it out of bronze. Bronze is symbolic. There's a lot of symbols. It's all symbolism, pictures of Jesus in the New Testament. It was obstinacy and hardness and insensitivity in sin. Bronze symbolizes where God's judgment deals with sin. And so that is where the sacrifices are taking place, the judgment. And then behind it, behind the altar, between that and the tabernacle is this bronze basin. Not coincidence, it's made out of bronze. And so that is where the priests, after they made the sacrifices, would wash up. So you have judgment, forgiveness, right, through the blood, and then you have this purity or cleansing before they would be able to go in the tabernacle. So pretty interesting. All right. So, you with me? Okay. God tells him to set this thing up in the middle of the camp, and whoever looks at it will live. So, anyone who's bitten, and unfortunately, there are people 
who probably weren't complaining, right? They're getting bit. Some of them died, and they're not even the ones that were participating. Just like we can choose our action, can't choose our consequences, unintended consequences. Um, we were in Colorado. Our family went to Colorado last year, and in case you don't know, that is the unofficial vacation spot of Journey Church. Uh, a lot of people go to Colorado. And we were out there, and we were in Garden of the Gods. People, but it's just fantastic, right? And there's this paved trail all the way around it. And being the adventuresome folks that we are, we saw this side trail in uh, Dirt Trail, and we decided to go off, and we were walking. We'd been walking a little ways, and all of a sudden, I started to hear something, and I hear this, like every couple seconds. And, you know, in nature, everything seems kind of random, and then there's this really, you know, methodical sound that I hear. And I start looking around, and sure enough, about 10 yards away, underneath a bush, is this silhouette of this rattlesnake. And his tail's in the air, and he's rattling it, and he's saying basically, hey, I'm over here. I'm over here. Don't come near me. Now, <laughs> we hightailed it out of there. But the rest of the trip was not enjoyable because as we're walking out the whole time, I'm like, you know, looking for snakes and where are they? Hey, get off the rocks. No, uh, you know, trying to get the kids down. The kids are, why, why do we have to? I didn't want to tell them that I just saw a rattlesnake. Um, but what I didn't do is I didn't go, that looks like a rattlesnake. I wonder if it is a rattlesnake. Let's go take a closer look and get closer. Yeah, it looks like a rattlesnake. I wonder what that rattle really looks like up close. I heard that snakes, I know, I know snakes are dangerous, they've bit other people, but I'm, it's fine, it's fine. I know what I'm doing. Guess what? I'm gonna get bit. We, it makes, sin should make us cautious. I was cautious walking out of there. It says in the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. We should stay as far away from sin as we can. Because just as Eve was standing next to the tree, he is going to come to you when you are most vulnerable. And you're vulnerable when you're too close to sin. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, when I think of this, provisions, provisions like food, right? Things that you need. Don't make, don't give anything out. Don't set anything out that the devil can use to tempt you with. Don't make any provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Our eyes need to be on Christ. They need to be directed towards him. Make no room for the flesh. All right, what in the world does that have to do with this conversation that he's having with Nicodemus? This snake in the wilderness gets lifted up. That's weird. Now, I said Nicodemus is an expert in the Old Testament. He knows he knows what this is all foreshadowing for the future. And the punishment that is, that is forthcoming. Jesus is telling him, look, Nicodemus, I am going to be like that snake. I'm going to be lifted up. When I am lifted up, people are going to look at me. I am going to become the symbol of the punishment, the punishment that everybody deserves. I'm going to take that. See, when people looked at it, it would absorb their sin. Literally, it would disappear. And he's saying, I am going to be lifted up. I am the one. And when people look at me, they can have eternal life. They won't die. So I am going to be like that snake that is lifted up. He's doing everything he can to open Nicodemus's eyes. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, gang, the full fury of God's wrath was placed on him, was thrown at Jesus on the cross. He literally became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness or the rightness of God. In, uh, in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet writes this. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we turn our eyes to the cross and we remember what he's done for us to make us right. Okay, last part here. And then I'm done. Coming in. 
Not really, but this is the last part. Okay, uh, there's a story in Acts about our friend Paul. You guys remember Paul? Uh, he wrote most of the New Testament. And you know he's been through countless persecutions. He's been jailed, he's been stoned, he's been whipped. Just about everything you can imagine. And in all of his travels and all of his preachings to the different churches, he wanted more than anything else to go to Rome. He was a Roman citizen, but he had never been there. And this is the epicenter of the empire. Everything that happens there filters out to the rest of the world. And he's like, I want to be there. I want to be there in the place of influence so that I can preach and make this thing happen. And so God says, okay, Paul, okay, you are going to go to Rome. Actually, you're going to stand in front of Caesar. You're going to get a preach to the president, man. It's going to be awesome. So he gets an all-expenses-paid boat ride. He gets a cruise ship to Rome as a prisoner. Of course. Of course he's a prisoner, right? And as they're on the way, they get in this storm, and the boat gets pushed towards this island, this island of Malta. And it gets stuck on the reef, and it starts to break up. Okay, and so they decide we're going to die if we stay here. So every every man for himself, they all jump off and head for the shore, and they're swimming in the ocean. Has anybody ever swam in the ocean before? And I'm not talking about near the shore. I'm talking about out in the ocean where the surf is. It's rough. I like to swim. I think I'm a good swimmer, and I have gotten out there. I'm like I'm just going to go a little bit farther out. It is a chore getting back against the surf, and when you get there, you're exhausted. And so here you've got all these prisoners washing up on shore, puking their guts out, right? And it's cold, they're shivering, and it says that the locals, the locals came out and showed them unusual kindness. I like that. They showed them unusual kindness. They came out and they started lighting fires and trying to get them warm, and it says, then it started raining. As if it's not bad enough, it starts raining. They're trying to light fires and it's raining. And, you know, these guys... They're standing there. They're cold. They're freaked out. They don't know where they are. Paul, our friend Paul, is walking up and down the beach picking up sticks, picking up wood for the fire. He went through the same thing, and yet he is still serving. It says in Philippians 4, he said, I have learned in every situation to be content. I wish I could say that. He's gone through the same thing. He's going, he's picking up sticks. So here's what happens. He picks up this bundle of sticks, he goes over to the fire, and he chucks this these wood, this pile of wood, onto the fire. It says, when that happened, this viper, who was hiding in there, sleeping in this pile of sticks, jumps out and fastens itself to his hand. <sighs> fastens to his hand. Now, are you kidding me? All of this stuff is happening. He's serving, and he gets bit on the hand. Have you ever been, ever been in a situation where you're serving God? And you're doing all the right things, playing by the rules, feeling pretty good. Sometimes we feel like when we're going after it, we should be immune from some of the problems of this world, but that ain't the way it works. Because if you're going after it, you all of a sudden have a target on your back. Satan's coming after you. So Paul's going to Rome. Do you think that Satan wanted Paul to go to Rome? No way. He didn't want him going there to preach. Are you kidding me to have that kind of influence? So he tries to take him out on Malta with this snake. And it says that it jumped out and fastened to his hand. Now, I like nature shows. I watch a lot of them. I was watching one last night. I love the Planet Earth series. When that came out, I couldn't get enough of it. Everything that I've seen, when a snake strikes, it strikes and then it comes back, right? It recoils. And that one bite is usually enough to do somebody in. This thing fastens to his hand and is just draining all that venom into Paul. Standing there with a snake hanging off his hand. And it says, when the locals saw that, they said, aha, this guy must be a murderer because he survived the wreck, but justice was going to be served. And so now he's gotten bit by this snake. And they knew what kind of snake it was. So they were sitting there watching him. The world's watching, remember? We get bit, the world's watching to see how we're gonna react. And they were waiting for him to swell up or die. And so they're watching. And it says that, he shook off the snake into the fire. He shakes it off, and they're watching him, and nothing happens. He comes to no harm. Now, Paul knew he wasn't going to die on that island. Like, that stinks. He got bit. That hurt. But he knew he wasn't going to die because God told him, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to stand in front of the emperor. And they all said, well, he must be a god. He didn't die. They knew what kind of snake it was. 
What do you think Paul did? Well, what can I say? I mean, Paul. No, he would have used that as an opportunity to tell them about the God. Now, what do we do in our circumstances when we get snake bit? Right? We've been given a promise too, you and me, that one day we are going to stand in front of God. We have an option. Are we going to stand there full of this poison of sin in front of him and get the punishment that we deserve? Or are we going to stand there next to Jesus, the great physician who has given us the antidote for this venom that's coursing through our bodies? And when God looks at him, he sees righteousness. He forgives us. Jesus said in John 16, he says, you will have trouble in this world. I guarantee it. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You're going to get through it. You're going to get through it because I'm going to be with you. If you want to get through it, let's do it together. Okay, now I guarantee that that bite hurt. I guarantee it. And he may have even had scars that he took with him to Rome when when he was there. Just because things happen doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, but he shook it off. All right, Nathan, what are you saying? Are you saying that when things happen to us life, we should just shake it off? Just shake it off. We use that in sports quite a bit. You know, something happens, hey, shake it off. Don't worry about it. Is that how we're supposed to be? This is a hard one. It is a hard one. If we are putting our faith and hope in God and we're living for eternity, we should shake these things off. Now, some people won't get this, and I hope not many in here, but some people won't get it. And when they get bit by circumstances in life, they stand there with this snake dangling from their hand. And they go around, and they're like, look at this. Can you believe this? Look at what God allowed to happen to me. And their identity becomes wrapped up in this snake that's hanging from their hand. And so when people see them, all they see is the snake. They don't see this God, this Jesus, that they say they believe in. And so we need to be those who put our faith in the one who has overcome the world and be able to shake it off. Well, Nathan, you just don't know what I'm going through. Easy for you to say, sitting up there, saying, shake it off. You don't know my situation. That is true. True story. Okay, true story about uh, there was this family. And they were serving, man. They were going after it. They were plugged in at church. They were, you know, serving in children's church. They were uh, teaching discipleship classes and uh, doing everything that they could do to grow. And about a year in, they're teaching this discipleship class. Everything's going awesome. And then they find out that they're pregnant. They're going to have a baby. Total miracle baby by all accounts. Total blessing. Very much a surprise. And so this family finishes up doing this two-year discipleship program that they're teaching. Two months after graduation, you know, they, uh, they get some news. Actually, I found a picture of this guy, this baby boy. Check him out. That dude didn't miss very many meals. So that is him right about the point that this, uh, that this discipleship class uh, winds up. Now, Two months after that, right after this picture was taken, he gets diagnosed with a very aggressive, very rare form of of brain cancer. And that's a big snake bite. That's a serious situation. And it was so bad they got sent down to St. Jude's down in Memphis. This is where all the rare cases uh, are treated. And he goes through months and months of surgeries and radiation and chemo. And the family's like, you know what? We're going to shake this off. God, we have our faith in him. He is bigger than this. He can handle it. We're just going to trust him. And he gets better, and they get to move back home. They move back home. And uh, everything is going smoothly until about six weeks later, there's a relapse. And this little boy goes to be with God. He goes to heaven. 
That's a big snake bite, right? These are circumstances of life. Um, now, I tell you that story because it's my family's story. Um, that happened to us, and so I'm not trying to be trite when I say that we need to shake off the circumstances of this world. It hurt, and it leaves scars that we'll carry with us for the rest of our life. But we made a decision that our family's identity is not going to be wrapped up in this circumstance. When people see us, when people see the Ewing family, I don't want them to see this snake that's hanging off of our hand because we have put our faith in the one who has overcome. We could have been filled up with bitterness, anger, regret, resentment, but the one, the great physician who has given us the antidote for that is where we put our trust. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's writing to the church there about the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. He says this, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is gone. It's gone. I've said it a couple times, but when we get bit by our circumstances, our eyes need to be on Jesus. Not on our circumstances, gang. On Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing about God's saving grace. All we have to do is look up. Look and believe. Even a child can do that. It doesn't take any special talents. There is this acronym uh, that I've heard a lot, and it's helped me to better understand when I hear the word grace. And the word grace... God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. All that he has to offer is ours at the expense of his son, Jesus. Now, it's all been done. It's all been completed. He has done it. Nothing that we can do. Now, check this out. In the Bible, multiple times we read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. Let's read some verses here that says that. Mark 16, 9. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1, 20. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly, heavenly realms. Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 8. Now the main point of what we're talking about is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of God on the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, why is that significant? He's seated. He's sitting down. Great. What does that mean? Remember I talked about the tabernacle that Moses constructed in the wilderness? Inside the tabernacle, gang, there were no chairs. No chairs. No place to sit. The Levites, they were serving. There was work to do. There was no place to sit down. But there was one seat inside in the Holy of Holies, right in the middle, where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, right? The lid was called the mercy seat. So you have the lid, and it has these two angels, the cherubim on top, that are reaching over. And in between the cherubim and the lid, this mercy seat, is where God's presence, his glory, where he spoke to Moses. And so what happens once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest will walk in with the blood of the sacrifice and he will sprinkle some of it on the lid, on the mercy seat. And God would see that, see the blood and forgiveness for the people. When God looks at our high priest, Jesus, he sees the blood that cleanses us. Jesus is seated because the work's been done. He's at rest, guys. When he died on the cross, the work is done. He's seated. He's resting. But there is one time in the Bible where we read that he is standing, where he's standing next to God. And we're going to jump down here in Acts 7. And this is the story of Stephen, the very first martyr in the Bible. 
Oddly enough, this is where we meet Paul too. He's standing there as Stephen is being stoned to death. Stephen has been driven to the edge of town and they are pelting him with rocks because of his testimony. It says that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And he's giving his testimony and ultimately he's going to give up his life because as they are pelting him with rocks, he says this, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And you guys can come up. Why is he standing? He's seated at rest. Sometimes we think it should be the opposite. Like God is in heaven and he's looking down and he's like, oh gosh, I hope they make it. Ah, I wish he hadn't done that. Okay, forgiven. And he's pacing back and forth nervous about whether or not we, and then we make it. And he's like, man, they made it. Not true. He is seated. Why does he stand? To receive us home, to receive us home where we're going. And this is offered to everyone. It's offered. If you haven't taken the opportunity to look up at Jesus and accept his sacrifice, You can do that today. You can do that today. So as the band starts playing, I'm going to pray. And all eyes closed, every head bowed. And as I pray, you can repeat after me, but if you've never done that, you can pray the prayer. You can lift your hand and you can start this journey with him. Dear Jesus, God, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you were raised up as a sacrifice for us. You became sin so that we could be made right with God. And Father, I choose to accept that. I choose to believe that. Your sacrifice cleanses us from all sins so that when God sees me, he sees you live that. I want to live that out in Jesus' name.